Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash PRK. This independent learning activity is funded by Sanofi Canada. I'd like to describe a patient that I have seen in my clinic. This individual is a 67-year-old male. He presented with multiple myeloma, hepatite chain isotype, and had translocation 414, but a lowish beta-2 microglobulin, normal albumin, and normal LDH, so he was revised ISS-2. He did receive induction with bortezomib and index, followed by a stem cell transplant, and commenced lenalidomide maintenance. Unfortunately, just over a year later, his kappa light chain level rose from approximately 15 to 223 milligrams per liter and had a new lytic rib lesion with an associated soft tissue mass. The patient underwent a bone marrow biopsy. He is now presenting to discuss the results and next steps in treatment. To ask the patient a question, tap the prompt below. When they reply, you'll be able to ask follow-up questions and review other relevant information. Hello, this is Dr. Donna Reese from the Princess Margaret Cancer Center and the CMRG, or Canadian Myeloma Research Group. Joining me today is Dr. Erwin Deep Sandu, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Alberta and Director of the Northern Alberta Blood and Marrow Transplant Program in Edmonton, Alberta. Thank you very much, Dr. Reese, for the invitation to come and talk to you today about this very important topic. So we have several regimens to choose from for patients relapsing after lenalidomide therapy, which in Canada most frequently puts the decision at the time of second-line treatment. I agree. I think that there are several key considerations for myeloma treatment that people need to have at the first relapse. The first is that attrition rates are high in multiple myeloma with key Canadian data suggesting that the amount of people who are unable to see second line is up around 19%. The second consideration one must have is we try to have our best hand forward for the first line setting. And lastly, what often guides all of our treatment decisions is evidence. We do have quite strong and compelling phase three evidence for this line of therapy, especially in regards to monoclonal antibodies for patients undergoing first relapse and onwards. I think one of the complications of selecting the best treatment at first relapse has to do with the fact that many of these trials did not include the type of population we're currently seeing in our clinic. Canada was really one of the first countries to have public funding for lenalidomide maintenance after stem cell transplant, going back to 2013. So at first relapse, the vast majority of our patients are lenalidomide refractory. The only study that had a predominance of lenalidomide refractory patients was the optimism trial with pomalidomide bortezomib index. 
but this is not regularly funded in all provinces. It doesn't include a CD38 antibody. I think we are fortunate in having funding for three regimens, the esituximab KD and esituximab PD, if you can get it, second line. And then Selinexar bortezomib dex is also funded in this setting. I think another factor to point out is that LEN refractory is a really adverse and potent negative risk factor in relapse. So this is a difficult to treat population and the patient just presented this individual relapsed early after transplant, which is a functional definition of high risk. So having a really potent second line regimen is essential. I think that any combination with carfilzomib and the monoclonal antibodies, daratumab or isotuximab, seem to be good and superior in an equal manner to carfilzomib itself. With isotuximab, carfilzomib, dexamethasone being funded now, it seems to be a true option for this particular patient population. We do have the Boston phase three study as well with the novel agent Selenexor with ortezomib. This one has a hazard ratio, which is a little bit less than the previous described combinations of monoclonal antibody carfilzomib, and it has the backbone of bortezomib. Most people may not feel comfortable reusing bortezomib, which does not have the neuropathy, which often will preclude people from clinical trials. So thinking of what people have had in the past and how their current therapy will affect them in the future in the myeloma chessboard that we have currently in Canada are all part of the treatment decisions one may have when really exploring options in this patient population. The other side of the coin is the toxicity, and there was a higher discontinuation rate in the CANDOR versus the Akima trial that does not have an easy explanation. The median age, prior treatment in these two trials were fairly comparable, but these regimens, I would say, are best given to a fit patient, and certainly carfilzomib while being a very good anti-myeloma agent, does have a low rate of serious cardiovascular effects that is not observed with other agents and is not as high even with other drugs in this class like ortezomib and ixazomib. Anti-CD38 antibodies have a very manageable safety profile that has benefited by our learning curves and ways to mitigate the common side effects. Whereas in the very early days, particularly with daratumumab, there were concerns about potentially serious infusion reactions. Proper premedication has reduced those to a very low level, and esituximab tends to have a somewhat lower infusion-related reaction rate anyway. So although precautions need to be taken, this has really become a very manageable situation. There is a risk of variable degrees of neutropenia with all of these regimens, and we do have to be aware of a high risk of reactivation, 
particularly viruses, herpes zoster, and hepatitis B zoster should be prevented with a cyclovir continuously. And our policy is to do that even in patients who've been vaccinated and patients should be screened for hepatitis B and prophylaxed with the appropriate antiviral agent if they are positive. We know that CD38 antibodies are associated with a higher risk of upper and lower respiratory infections. Patients who have had a history of frequent infections before they start on these regimens or in our center, really one significant infection warrants IV or subcutaneous gamma globulin to lessen the risk of subsequent problems. The Boston trial had a 15 to 20 percent risk of discontinuation. The use of Selenexor is associated most commonly with gastrointestinal side effects. And because of this, some practitioners have had a negative experience with the use of this drug. However, I would say that there is no bad drug out there, especially if there is an agent which has the ability to control the myeloma. The use of antiemetics is quite key with this particular agent. The nausea, anorexia, and diarrhea are ones that can be successfully mitigated with either dose reduction or starting at a lower dose and potentially working your way up. The one side effect I do make note of is the last one listed under Selenex or cataracts. The dramatic and rapid rise of cataracts, I believe primarily due to the dexamethasone, but potentially in combination with the Selenexor, is something that I've seen. So monitoring these side effects are quite key. Thrombocytopenia that is often in combination with the bortezomib is also something you need to watch out for. I think one other important feature of Selenexor is dose reduction. And I think the dose, I understand that is effective and certainly associated with lower toxicity is lower than the dose used in the actual trial. I agree. I often start patients on a little bit of a lower dose and escalate that or decrease it as we need. So if we try to pull all of this discussion together and go through the factors involved in making a final recommendation, we need to look at the age and comorbidities. And I think you've heard the themes, particularly of peripheral neuropathy and cardiovascular disease. We have to listen to what the patient's preferences are. And that is often related to social factors, frequency of coming to clinic ease of coming to clinic. Daratumumab can be given subcutaneously, whereas esotuximab right now is still intravenous, although there is a subcutaneous form coming fairly quickly that can be given at home. Then if we look at the myeloma itself, we use cytogenetics, uh, moving towards other features and timing and aggressiveness of relapse. The patient that I saw had bad cytogenetics and a rapid relapse, and one feels the need to treat fire with fire and not go with a regimen that might be a little easier to tolerate, such as a pomalidomide combination, at least in frequency and length of visits. I'd like to introduce you to a 68-year-old woman that I saw back in 2018. 
she was diagnosed with multiple myeloma on the basis of the extremely high kappa light chain of 13,000. New dialysis need with rapid decline in renal function. She was not aneuric at this point in time and still able to make urine. So I found that of some hope. Her bone marrow biopsy at that point did show 40% plasma cells with no high-risk cytogenetics as defined at that point in time, but she did have a translocation 1114. We treated her with a renally adjusted twice-weekly form of bortezomib for four cycles with the Cybor-D regime in common use in Canada at that time. She responded wonderfully with a rapid decline in her free light chains. And as well, she did come off of dialysis after about six weeks of therapy. Her creatinine did level off at around 280 or so, and we did make plans for her to undergo high-dose melphalan with autologous stem cell rescue. She went through it and actually had a renal function that was significantly better, possibly due to all the fluids that we were providing during the actual transplant itself. Subsequent to that, she was given lenalidomide, and we didn't quite get the same duration that one would have expected. We only got about two and a half years with a VGPR noted with their free kappa light chains measuring at around 100 to 150 afterwards. The patient is now presenting to discuss the latest results and next steps in treatment. To ask the patient a question, tap the prompt below. When they reply, you'll be able to ask follow-up questions and review other relevant information. So we've seen a patient who's been in a higher-risk category due to the earlier-than-expected relapse and renal impairment. Exposure to the monoclonal antibody class is very helpful, but one does need to be mindful of the funded options and the clinical situation is, of course, very important as well. The CADETH algorithm does help with this, so uh, having a look at that particular treatment algorithm can be of great assistance when seeing what is available in Canada at that particular point in time. So the scenario of patients being refractory to two agents, such as lenalidomide and bortezomib, that adds to the aggressiveness and uh, the lack of durability of your subsequent line of therapy. We do state that the dancing partner is important, and I don't know of very many people who are very comfortable combining the monoclonal antibody with a repeat of lenalidomide or bortezomib in that situation. And it may speak to the utility of the monoclonal antibody and carfilzomib combinations or pomalidomide based on the patient characteristics. I agree. The partners of interest with CD38 antibodies that were the focus for this patient involve pomalidomide and dexamethasone rather than carfilzomib and dexamethasone. There is potential concern giving carfilzomib in someone who has renal insufficiency, although it's not a contraindication to carfilzomib. But people who've been on dialysis may have other cardiovascular issues related to their renal insufficiency. So if we look at the two trials, the results are quite interesting that one sees about a year median PFS and the hazard ratios are not that dissimilar. When we look at the toxicity profile of the CD38 POMDEX regimens, one can see that the rate of 
discontinuation for toxicity is really quite low. Pomalidomide does require thromboprophylaxis, and if the patient has had a thrombotic event by history, usually we prefer anticoagulation stronger than the oral low-dose aspirin that is used in the usual case. I think we want to know if patients have had a rash or cutaneous reaction to lenalidomide, as there is some cross-reactivity. These, by and large, are manageable. Low number of adverse events leading to discontinuation is quite interesting compared to the previous discussion with Istuximab or daratumab carfilzomib combinations. One can sense that a more frail population may be able to be treated with the pomalidomide-based combinations. This is part of the whole approach when considering patient factors when sequencing. Looking at this list of issues, such as renal impairment or frailty, one can see that the pomalidomide-based combinations seem to be a bit better in their selection given the ease of use of pomalidomide and the portability as well. Getting someone in for once or twice a week of carfilzomib as well as a monoclonal antibody and trying to match it with three times a week dialysis from a timesheet standpoint by itself can be a limiting step, not to mention the use of some of those agents like carfilzomib in a dialysis population might not have the strongest level of evidence in it. The use of all of these agents is certainly not precluded by neuropathy. Haven't seen too many people complain of it apart from previous therapies that people have had or possibly a concomitant amyloid type syndrome or cryoglobin that might be present in some of these patients. I do worry about the cardiovascular risk factors that we do see in patients, although classically associated with carfilzomib that might limit its use especially in the post-autologous transplant population with the 6% rate of cardiovascular events that occur five years after autologous transplant in the myeloma population. And on the whole, do you think that depending on the frailty, the distance, the renal impairment, and the presence of some cardiovascular risk factors and cytopenias, this all goes towards the mix of deciding which therapy is best for that person living with myeloma that you have sitting in front of you. Thank you, Dr. Sandu. So in summary, we have several regimens to choose from for patients at the time of second-line treatment. There is an emerging consensus that ESA-KD is best offered to fit younger patients, motivated patients for the frequent visits, certainly those with higher risk features whereas ESA-POMDEX is better tolerated in general and necessitates fewer visits to the chemotherapy center. Nevertheless, both of these CD38 regimens really have been practice changing and offer patients the opportunity for the benefits of CD38 treatment, making them eligible for the even newer immunotherapeutic platforms that we anticipate coming to Canadians over the next few years. Thank you very much, Dr. Reese, for spending the time with me to discuss treatment decisions for multiple myeloma. Thank you for this informative discussion. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.